been 31 to 32 years of age. In January of, of that year, he came down and he is baptized by John the Baptist. So we'll put a B here for baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately he is led out into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. And then he was tempted, test, he went through three temptations from Satan to, as a test of his messianic credentials before he was presented publicly, uh, came back and presented and began to uh, have his public ministry to, the, to Israel. That took place in January to February. We have those 40 days, approximately six weeks. And then in that third day, we saw in John chapter 1 that there were four days in the life of John the Baptist. And on the third day, Jesus returns from the wilderness and begins to gather his disciples around him. That week-long period ended when he went to Cana of Galilee for his first um, for his first miracle, there he changed the water into alcoholic wine. And that's the subject of the first part of chapter 2. All of that would have occurred approximately the end of February or early March. Then the next thing we learn is he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. Passover took place in early March, and there he cleansed the temple, had his meeting with Nicodemus, and then having experienced some rejection by the religious leaders in Judea, he heads out into Judea, uh, starting in verse 22. So he's in Judea, but he's not there very long. I think it's interesting to note just the little chronological hints that the apostle gives us. By the end of John chapter 4, when he is talking to the disciples, and he obviously points to the wheat fields around him and says that the fields are white into harvest, that gives us a clue. Now, a lot of people, when they go through the chronology here, they think that, well, the wheat fields are ripe into harvest, that this must be sometime in the fall. This just shows the problem that in understanding agriculture in Judea. It was winter wheat. They planted it about this time of year, and it came up in late May to early July, depending on how much rain they had and other weather factors. So by the end of John chapter 4, we're talking about sometime probably in June. So all the events that we're talking about are covered in the first six months of this gospel. So it's June of the first year of Jesus' public ministry in Judea. And this is what happens. Let me read the context beginning in John chapter 4. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Well, what's taking place in these first verses? Jesus' popularity has been increasing, which we saw at the end of the third chapter, and it's now taken the notice of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. According to their rules and regulations, if anybody made the claim to be a Messiah, then they had to send, send out an investigative committee to verify his credentials, to see if indeed he did make a claim to be the Messiah, number one, and number two, to make sure to see if he could validate his claim to be the Messiah. 
So now Jesus is coming to their attention and they're going to be investigating him. And Jesus realizes at this time that he will come into a head-to-head conflict, confrontation with the, the religious leaders in Judea. So it's wiser for him to, in terms of accomplishing what the Father's plan is for his life, for him to do an end run around them and to head north and to get out of Judea where it will be too hot for him too soon so that he will have time to fulfill his ministry. So he heads out. When, they, when the Pharisees heard that he was becoming very popular, he heads out. They're going to be coming after him. Now, it's an interesting note in verse 2 that Jesus understood the dynamics of the delegation of authority. It was not Jesus who baptized. It was his disciples. He delegated authority and responsibility for various ministries within the church to, to his disciples. You see the same pattern in the book of Acts where you see that the apostles recognize that their responsibility was to study and teach and to pray. And if they got involved in all of the administrative functions within dealing with all of these new converts, part of that was distributing food to the widows of various various Hellenized Jews who were in Jerusalem during the feast days, that if they got involved in all of these other things, which is comparable today to visiting the visitor, new visitors to the church. And this is what most pastors have to do. Every time there's a new visitor, they have to make sure they go up and greet them, shake their hand, give them a phone call, go by the house and visit them. All of these various things are expected of pastors. Show up at the hospital whenever anybody has a hangnail. Call them up when they have the flu. Uh, go visit all the old ladies in the church and all, all, all the widows. I had to do that in my first church, but I rather enjoyed it because they, they could cook. <laughs> and they'd always fix lunch for me. And there was one, one lady in the church every Friday morning. She would come down to the office with a large cake pan full of homemade sourdough biscuits. I had to stop that after six months because I couldn't fit into any of my clothes anymore. <laughs> And she would have me come over for lunch, and she would, after I, she had already stuffed me, she would say, okay, now it's time for dessert. And she'd pull out a homemade apple pie, quarter it, and give me, put a quarter of the pie in a bowl, and then take out a half a gallon of ice cream and put half of that on top of it. After a while, I just had to go back to biblical principles that the pastors just studies and teaches, and that's it. But the apostles recognized that principle of delegation of authority, that everybody in a local church has different spiritual gifts. There are those who have the gift of helps. There are those who have the gift of, of mercy. There are those who have the gift of, uh, of administration. There are those who have various different gifts, and they need to function in those gifts. The pastor has the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. His job description is to teach the Word of God. His job is to feed the sheep. The only way that the sheep can gain the spiritual nourishment they need to grow to spiritual maturity is to learn the Word of God and to learn it in such a way that they can apply it and that they can grow. It is not the pastor's responsibility to get involved in other areas because he's not gifted in those areas. So you want to have people in the body of Christ performing in the areas in which they have spiritual gifts because nobody else can do what the pastor can do. And that is, hopefully, study the Word of God 
extract the doctrines that are necessary that are in that passage, do the exegesis, do all the historical background work, put together the message, teach the Word of God so that people can feed on it, so that their souls are nourished and they can grow to spiritual maturity. What's happened today is people have lost sight that that is the unique role of the pastor-teacher. That that is, they, they, With all this emphasis on spiritual gifts that we hear today, we've lost sight of the fact that that's the role of the pastor-teacher. That nobody else in the body of Christ has that ability to get into the Word of God. By analogy, the pastor is off... I, I, I would compare him to a mining engineer. Just about anybody can learn how to pan for gold and go up to a stream with a pan and pick up some, some dirt and silt and sand off the bottom of a, of a stream bed and learn how to sift it, move it around in the pan to see if the, the, there's any gold there. But very few people have the training, the knowledge, the background, the expertise to be able to look at rock formations and to know how to dig deeply into the earth, move it all out of the way, and get to the, those deep, thick, veins of gold ore. That's the gift of pastor-teacher. He has the ability not only to get into the Word of God and to dig into the Word of God to extract the uh, nourishment that is there spiritually, but also to communicate it to the sheep so they can feed on it. Well, Jesus understood the whole principle of delegation of responsibility, and so he delegates to the disciples where he can. They're baptizing and he's doing the job of teaching. So he leaves Judea in the south of, in the south of, of, uh, in the southern part of Israel here. We have our map. We can just see this a whole lot better now that we have the new overhead, can't we? This is Judea, the southern area down here, which in the Old Testament had been, uh, the area of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Then in the northern province up here, around the Sea of Galilee, you have Galilee. In between is the area of Samaria. Now the way to remember that is that here is Judea, here is Galilee, and in between you have some area. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, there are three major ways that you would travel from the south of Judea to the north of Galilee. The first, which is the way that the self-righteous Pharisees traveled, would be to go just north of the Dead Sea, approximately this area just west of, or east of Jericho, cross the fords there into Gilead, and then go north. This area region over here was called Perea take the highway in Perea up north to Galilee and completely avoid the region of Samaria. The second way would be to take, go over and take the coast highway and go up the coast, but that was a little, long, little longer yet. And the shortest route, of course, was to go head due north up through Samaria up to uh, past Shechem, which is right here, and notice just to the west uh, is Mount Gerizim, the little black triangle you can see there, if your eyes are good enough. You have Mount Gerizim, and then just to the north of it, Mount Ebal. Gerizim has an elevation of about 2,800 feet, and Mount Ebal is a little over 3,000 feet. And they're right next to each other with the low shoulder uh, separating them. 
That was a very important sight, and that is the scene of the action starting in verse 5. He had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Now, before we get too involved here, we need to realize that there's an important little word in verse 4. Verse 4, we have the word, the Greek word, a day. E-D-E-I. And it, it's the verb for necessity, that there was a, a necessity for Jesus going this way. Not simply because that's the route of the highway that heads north into uh, Galilee, but that this was the plan of God for Jesus' life was to go into Galilee and to witness to this Gentile uh, Samaritan woman. This is the first time the gospel goes to someone who is not a Jew. Now, generally speaking, the Galileans would travel this route through Samaria whenever they were going to Jerusalem for the feast, but the self-righteous uh, Pharisees of the south would have nothing to do with the Samaritans because of their background. So in order to understand this, we must do a little investigation into the history of Samaria and go to the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. 2 Kings 17, 23. Now, in the Old Testament, the monarchy began with David. Or with Saul, there were three kings, Saul, David, and David's son, Solomon. When Solomon died, there was a civil war. Rehoboam, the king, became the king in the north, led the ten northern tribes in a rebellion against Jerusalem, against Solomon's son, Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south, against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And Jeroboam established himself as the king in the north. The northern kingdom became known as Israel, and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. The southern kingdom went out under this fifth cycle of discipline when they were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom lasted until 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, and they went out under captivity. But the last king in the north was Hosea. He transferred his allegiance from to Egypt in rebellion against Assyria. He had been paying tribute to the king in Assyria for a number of years, and then he decided to pull his freight that he was going to get a better deal with an alliance with Egypt. And so he shifted his alliance with Egypt against Assyria. That angered the Assyrian king, and so the armies of Shalmaneser headed south under the command of Sargon, and in 721 B.C., they destroyed, 721, 722 B.C., they destroyed the, the um, northern kingdom. As a result of this, the Assyrians applied their policy of resettlement. What they would do is they would come in and they, they would conquer an area and they would take all the people there and they would move them to various sections of their empire so that they would uh, dilute their, their race and destroy any possibility of the people reuniting in a rebellion against them. And this is where we find ourselves 
as the background for 2 Kings chapter 17. Let's start in verse, uh, verse 22. And the sons of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them. And the sins of Jeroboam are idolatry. Idolatry reigned in the north. In fact, Jeroboam was one of the first people in history to engage in historical revisionism. Sometime we'll do a study of that. But it shows how, how politicians rewrite history to suit their own purposes. And in the Old Testament, God declared that the center of worship for all of the Jews was in Jerusalem at one central temple. Well, once he led the northern tribes in rebellion, uh, he couldn't get. A, he, he didn't like the idea of all of them going back down to Jerusalem six, five or six times a year for worship for all of the festivals. So he changed. He rewrote scripture, threw out a lot of it, and rewrote history so that the center of worship would be in the north in Samaria, where he built a competing uh, tabernacle. And there he erected an idol of a golden calf where the people would come and worship. So he not only rewrote history, rewrote the scriptures, but he led the people into idolatry. And that was the reason that the northern kingdom was taken out under divine discipline uh, in 722 B.C. Verse 23, Until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria, until this day. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, and from Cuthah, and from Avah, and from Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So not only did he take the Israelites from the northern kingdom away and resettle them into various areas of his empire, he would bring foreigners from various parts of the empire back to Samaria in order to dilute and destroy the racial purity of the Jews in the northern kingdom. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. And it came about at the beginning of their living there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Divine discipline in the form of a plague of lions. How would you like to get up in the morning and go out to... uh, uh, check your morning mail and always have to be worried that a lion might, might pounce on you. Well, there was a plague of lions and many were killed. And so they, that generated a little thought in their, in their minds about, well, maybe we've angered the God of these people. So let's see how we can solve the problem. Verse 26. So they spoke to the king of Assyria saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them, because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, and let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. Notice now you've got religious syncretism. We're going to take what we believe in our idolatry, and now we're going to mix and mingle what they've had in the past, and we're going to come out with a new syncretism a new religious system. Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile, let him go and live there, and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So we're going to treat God as just one of many other gods. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. 
And the men of Babylon made Sukkoth, Benot. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to, to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So we see the idolatry continue. They're just going to give it a little religious coating with the truth of, uh, of the Old Testament. You see, people still do the same thing today. This is what happens in, in our society. People live in a world in which they grow up operating on experience, on mysticism, on subjectivity and arrogance, and then they get saved and they just use that to coat everything they've been doing all, all their life, and they never really have an, a change from the inside out, which is the goal of Romans 12.2, that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to renovate. That means to completely renew and reshape our thinking. Well, that's not what they were doing, and this is the source of the problem that we find in John chapter 4. There is a mongrel population here. It's a mixed breed, Heinz 57 variety ethnic population, and the name that was assigned to them was Samaritans after the name of, of Samaria, the capital city of the region, which was originally founded by, by Omri. Omri was the second or third king in the northern dynasty, uh, and he founded this as the capital of the northern kingdom. So the result of this mixture was not only a mixed, uh, uh, mixed races, but there was divine discipline and an attempt to assuage the deity uh, through an illegitimate appeal to religious practice. The second thing we note is that later on, after the, these events, when a remnant of Jews returned uh, after the Babylonian exile to the southern kingdom under Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the altar, they began to rebuild the temple, and they tried to, um, and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and the jealous Samaritans in the north tried to sabotage their activities. This is covered in Ezra chapter 3 and 4, and in Nehemiah chapters 1 through 4. This set up a hostile attitude between the Jews in the south and Samaritans in the north. The Samaritans hated the Jews and they built a competing temple on Mount Gerizim to compete with what was taking place in Jerusalem. This temple was destroyed in 128 B.C. by one of the Maccabean rulers, John Hyrcanus. But worshippers continued to come to Mount Gerizim to offer sacrifices and in fact, some of the Samaritan descendants still do that to this day. All of this sort of underlies the whole problem between the so-called Palestinians and the Jews today. This is nothing new. This kind of division in the land has gone on almost from the inception because the Jews did not wipe out the original Canaanite population. And then a fourth thing we need to note here is they rewrote the Pentateuch. They rewrote, the, they rewrote the Old Testament scriptures. They basically did away with everything after uh, Deuteronomy. And then they rewrote various sections of Deuteronomy to make the giving of the law occur on Mount Gerizim and to make Mount, Mount Gerizim the center of uh, religious practice so that we have historical revisionism, theological revisionism, and scriptural revisionism. It's nothing new. It's been going on for centuries. So they argued that uh, Jewish ritual was completely wrong, practice at the temple was wrong, and so this developed an intense rivalry and hatred and bitterness and violence between the Samaritans and the Jews. 
All of that forms the background to John chapter 4. Their religion was a heresy based on a complete reinterpretation of the Bible and history. Then in 2 Kings 17.32 and 33 we read, They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods. How can they do that? They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into exile. Now, turn back to John chapter 4. We want to be very careful here. We're going to spend two or three weeks going through this chapter and analyzing Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. This is another classic example of evangelism, and we have already spent some time analyzing Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. What we are learning from this is some divine viewpoint examples of how to witness to an unbeliever. We live in an era when evangelism has, has been uh, uh, heavily impacted by a lot of human viewpoint thinking. It's been impacted by uh, entertainment. It's superficial. And too often what we find is it focuses on the wrong issue. You have people being told that they need to invite Jesus into their heart in order to be saved. And yet if you analyze Revelation 3.20, that's a passage that is directed to believers and has to do with fellowship and doesn't have anything to do with salvation. We have people who want to add discipleship and lordship to the requirement for salvation. What do I have to do to be saved? Well, you have to make Jesus Lord of your life. And the scripture says that all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You also have the problem that people don't understand the reason for evangelism. And this goes back, as I explained in the first hour, to a lot, to the impact of Charles Grandison Finney in the early part of the 1800s. Finney did not believe in the total depravity of man. He did not believe that every man is born a sinner. He believed that every man is born just as, as, um, as Adam was created, without sin, without a sin nature, and completely neutral. He believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross not as a substitute for our sins, but Jesus Christ died as a moral example. And the basic problem that men have is not that they are are sinners and inherently evil or wicked. Total depravity does not mean that you are as bad as you can be. It means that every aspect of your being, your being in its totality, is affected by sin. And um, he did not believe that, but he believed that the issue was all we have to do is motivate people to want to do the right thing because the inherent problem is not a constitutional defect of sin. It's just kind of an illness. And all we have to do is get them to want to do the right thing. So he devised a number of techniques to try to get people over this emotional or psychological hurdle so they would want to be saved. And this is so typical today. Finney originated the uh, anxious seat where if you wanted to know God, then you would come down and sit down on the anxious bench. Another one of his little techniques was walking the aisle. How many of you, don't raise your hands, have been to churches where they gave an invitation at the end? Anybody who wants to go to heaven, come forward. Anybody who wants to know Jesus, come forward. Before long, they've got everybody coming forward. And they sing 75 verses of Just As I Am or some other song. And all of this is designed to get people into a certain psychological, emotional state so that they'll come forward, so that they'll have this, this uh, 
emotional reaction, and they'll have an emotional conversion. And all of these techniques originated with Finney. So we can lay at Finney's feet a lot of the problems today that come across in evangelism. Salesmanship is another problem today. People have confused evangelism with salesmanship. Now, there may be some superficial similarities, but remember, salesmanship, the problem is that you have to convince somebody that they just want what you're trying to sell them. That's a motivational thing, and it's psychological and emotional. That's Finneyism. But the Scripture teaches that it's a deeper problem than that, that they are a sinner, and they are, have been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, according to Romans 1, 19 and 20. And the issues are spiritual. The issues are not intellectual. They're not emotional. They are spiritual. And so the issue at its fundamental level must be dealt with by God the Holy Spirit, who is the sovereign executor of evangelism. We don't have to, therefore, know all the answers. We don't have to be able to bring to bear in the conversation all of the arguments for the existence of God. We don't have to answer all their questions about creation and evolution. We don't have to solve the problem of evil as it's formulated in that generation by contemporary uh, philosophers. All we have to know is the truth of Scripture. That Scripture says, first of all, that man has a problem. He is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of, free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That, he who knew no, that the solution is in Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. The scripture says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why? For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Evangelism today has been virtually destroyed by all of the psychological and emotional gimmicks that have come along in history in the last 150 years, and we have to get back to what the Scripture says, and what better way than to look at how Jesus witnessed to unbelievers in these encounters in John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. So we find ourselves now in John chapter 4, verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Notice how the Apostle John is locating this in space-time history. This is not a, a myth. This is not legend. This, is, this just didn't happen with any woman anywhere. This happens at a specific place in space and time. Outside the city of Sychar, on a parcel of ground that has deep significance. It is a parcel of ground that Jacob... Uh, originally bought to use for a gravesite, and he gave part of that to Joseph, and that is where Joseph's bones were buried after they brought him out of Egypt at the Exodus. And it is also the site of Jacob's well, verse 6. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied for, from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the location here, we've already seen in our map, I'll show it to you again, is right here. Here is Shechem, located on the eastern sh shoulder of Mount Gerizim to the south and Mount Ebal to the north. 
Now, if we were going to locate it, it would look something like this. We'll draw some topographical rings here to indicate Mount Gerizim. And then here you have a little, have a valley. And up here to the north, you have Mount Ebal. And over here is the city of Shechem. And over here on this shoulder of the well, just on the shoulder of, the, of Mount Gerizim, is where Jacob's well is located. Mount Gerizim overlooks the Nablus Valley, and the pass between it is the only access from the east to the west into the hill country of Ephraim. It was in this place that Abraham built his first altar after arriving in Canaan in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. It was also here that the Israelites recommitted themselves to the Mosaic Covenant under Joshua after they entered the land. At the end of Deuteronomy, the last two or three chapters, we're told that six of the tribes gathered over here on Mount Gerizim, and the other half, the other six tribes, gathered over here on Mount Ebal, and they read antiphonally. That means one side read first, and then the other side read second, and back and forth, the blessings and the cursings related to the Mosaic Covenant that are contained within the Mosaic Covenant in a reaffirmation of the nation's commitment to the Mosaic Law. So this is an area that has rich significance in the Old Testament. And all that plays a part. We have to do tremendous amount of context work here so that we in the 20th century who are divorced from Old Testament theology, divorced from uh, the, the geography of Israel and divorced by 2,000 years from these events so that we can relate to this and understand the significance for our own spiritual life. So Jesus and his disciples have been walking the dusty road since early morning. They're tired. They're hungry. They come to a fork in the road. The highway came up this way and had a little side road that went over here to the well. And then the main road went up here by Sychar and then headed on north to Galilee. And as they come there, Jesus sits down to rest. In his humanity, he is tired. He is weary. He's thirsty. It's lunchtime. McDonald's hasn't built a place there yet, so he has to send the boys into town to grab a few hamburgers and french fries and bring them back for lunch. He also wants to get them out of the way. There's a little principle here. And that is that sometimes it's important to get the young believers out of the way while you go about the business of a little uh, serious evangelism because so often some spiritual baby is just going to get in the way and we're going to see that they would have had some real problems. He knows what's coming up. He knows that this woman's on the way and he has to get them out of sight because they would just mess up the entire uh, witnessing situation. So he sends them on into town while he prepares for his conversation with the woman. It's the sixth hour. It's about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now this is fascinating because of what will happen here. That this woman, not only did a Jew never talk to a woman, or never talk to a Samaritan, but no man would ever talk engage a woman in conversation. The rabbis, a rabbi was, in fact, the regulations for rabbis were that they weren't even to talk to their wives 
in public walking down the street because someone might not realize that's his wife and might think that he's engaged in some kind of immoral behavior. That's how strict the legalism was. So Jesus is violating all kinds of legalistic strictures here because he's going to engage a Samaritan in a conversation in violation of all the rabbinical regulations, but he is also going to engage a woman in conversation. So he is breaking through all of the uh, legalism that exists at this time. He says to her, give me a drink. Now, this is important because what we saw with Nicodemus, we must draw a contrast between this and the conversation with Nicodemus. My pen's drying up here. Here's Nicodemus, and here's the Samaritan woman. The first and obvious contrast is that Nicodemus was a man and the Samaritan woman is a woman. Secondly, Nicodemus is probably the foremost Bible teacher in his generation. And she is just, we'll use the term very loosely in this context, she is just a a wife. She's living with someone. If you don't know the story, she's just living with a man at this point. Uh, he's a man, he's a teacher, he seems to be positive. At least he is curious and he comes to Jesus to ask a question. Or he's concerned about something. She is, we'll put a minus sign here, she's not curious at all. She just sees a man sitting there by the well. She has no spiritual inclinations whatsoever. Nicodemus is wealthy, the woman is poor, Nicodemus is educated. The woman is not educated. I made a mess of that. Not educated. Jesus takes one approach with Nicodemus. Remember when we studied that approach? He focuses on ultimate authority issues with Nicodemus. He says, if I speak of things of the earth and you don't listen to me, how will you believe me when I tell you heavenly things? He talked about the wind. He talk, and we saw there that, that he, he challenged Nicodemus because Nicodemus' ultimate solution or ultimate authority in his thinking was empiricism. And Jesus challenged Nicodemus by showing him that he couldn't even explain where the wind came from or where it was going, that there were many truths that are, be, that are beyond his ability to empirically learn and that he had to be willing to submit to external authority of someone who came from heaven and spoke to him about heavenly truth. So with Nicodemus, he addresses some pretty serious intellectual issues, but not with the woman at the well. He has a completely different approach. For her, he simply asked her a question. Give me something to drink. He's establishing his common ground. This is one of the most difficult things between a believer and an unbeliever in a witnessing situation. What's our common ground? Too often we want to, some some will say, well, the common ground is logic. Let's appeal to the unbeliever on the basis of logic. Others will say history. Well, we can both agree that that Jesus rose from the dead. But the unbeliever may assign a different meaning to that. You see, history is not neutral. Logic's not neutral. 
Some may say, well, let's appeal on the basis of reason. The Bible is more rational than evolution or some other religion. Some may uh, appeal on the basis of empiricism. Whatever it may be, common apologetics techniques are let's appeal to this area of common ground. And yet what we have seen in our study of the Scriptures is the only thing that the believer and unbeliever have in common is on the level of their both being creatures created in the image of God. Because the unbeliever, just as a believer, has the knowledge of God within him. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He knows that God exists because he knows it within. The knowledge of God is evident within him. And when he looks at the heavens, he sees that the power of God is evident to him. And yet he is suppressing it in unrighteousness. He'll never admit it. You sit down and talk with the unbeliever. He'll never admit, perhaps, that he believes God exists. He's suppressing that in unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean he doesn't know it. Deep down in his soul, he knows that God exists. So the area to appeal to is not logic, reason, history, but on the, the common ground of being a creature with creaturely needs. And that's where we find Jesus in John 4, 7. Give me something to drink. John, verse 8, just a parenthesis telling us that he had sent his disciples away. They would have just, you know, just distracted him with, Why are you talking to that woman? Why are, you, why are you asking her for something? We'll get that for you. You just leave that woman alone. You just stay with... You know, they had just gotten in the way. So he's, they're off in the city buying food. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And see, what he has done by asking her for something to drink is he has raised her curiosity in engaging her in conversation. And next week, we'll come back and we'll look at his, the technique that he uses in evangelism and how we can apply what G- Jesus does in witnessing to the woman at the well to our own witnessing and how to explain the gospel. Always remember this. Everybody's different. Don't ever assume. This is one of the biggest problems in evangelism today. They come out with these canned approaches as if every human being is the same, that if this works with this person, it will work with somebody else. But everybody's different. They have different backgrounds, different questions, different personalities. And what you have to learn is the basics of the gospel so that you can articulate that clearly to anyone in any situation using a variety of strategies and tactics in order to get them to the point where they're focused on the cross. And that's why the way Jesus handles the woman at the well is completely different from the way he handled Nicodemus. And the result is that this woman is going to ignite one of the greatest revivals in the ancient world in biblical, in, in the biblical record. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to look at your word, to study from our Lord's life how he communicated the gospel to those who were lost. Father, challenge us in our own lives as we seek to explain the gospel to those in our families, those who we work with, those in our periphery who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Help us to make the issues clear. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, who does not know if they would be in heaven, that they would have a clear understanding of the gospel, that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
but according to your mercy that you have saved us. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that they would understand the gospel and that right now in the silence of their own thoughts, they would say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's required. All that is necessary is simply faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week that you would uh, challenge us and if we have opportunities to communicate the gospel to those who are lost, that we would take advantage of those opportunities and that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we would make a clear case for the gospel of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.